Who is the greatest man that has ever lived? Welcome to the Jesus Freedom Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Roundtree. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jesus Freedom Podcast. I hope you're having a great day. The title of this episode is The Greatness of Jesus. There are a multitude of reasons why Jesus is great. So in this short episode, I will only list a few. Many have asked this question, though, who is the greatest man in the world? If you go online, there's a number of articles that you could come across, and Jesus actually will be in some of those articles. And the actual, the one I'm looking at right now, the top 10 greatest men in the world on the website, the top 10s, uh, does list Jesus as number one. But if you go to some other lists, Jesus is either not on the list at all, or he's down below, maybe three, number five. But on this list, Jesus is number one. That's not why I picked it, but I'm going to list some of the other men in the article just to show you what some other people thought who who might be great men. The second person on the list is Muhammad. He is considered a prophet among those who are of the religion of Islam, and many people respect him and consider him to be an important historical figure. The third person on the list is Isaac Newton, who is known as a scientist or mathematician. He is considered one of the most influential scientists of all time. He also, though, was a Christian and devout follower of Jesus. The third person on the list is Albert Einstein, who also is a famous scientist who made a great contribution to the scientific world. The fifth person is going to be Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. He is known for freeing the slaves. The sixth person's name on the list was Gautama Buddha. He was known as a Aztec and a sage, or as we would say today, as a very wise person. The next person on the list was Napoleon Bonaparte. Interesting enough, this is what Napoleon said about Jesus. He said, Alexander, Caesar, and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men will die for him. Number eight is William Shakespeare, who is known as an English poet and writer. Number nine, Aristotle, known as a Greek philosopher and scientist. And number 10, the Apostle Paul, who was an enemy of Jesus, but he was converted once he had an encounter with Jesus Christ that changed his life. So out of this list of nine people, two of them would have been followers of Jesus. Many would say Abraham Lincoln was a Christian. He was definitely considered to be a believer in God. 
Napoleon Bonaparte, who I forgot to mention was a French military and political leader during the French Revolutionary War, he also mentioned that Jesus was great. Now, as we look over this list, as I mentioned, I do believe it is debatable that everyone on this list would actually be considered great. I'm not going to make that debate now. I'm going to go on and list reasons why I believe Jesus Christ is the greatest man that's ever lived. I'm going to start with Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Just briefly, there's a scene here where John is taken up into heaven and he sees in the Spirit, he sees one sitting on the throne, one that's powerful, one that's beautiful. It's surrounded by a rainbow. There's thunders and lightnings. It's very beautiful. It's very graphic. And then on the throne, this person sitting on the throne is holding a scroll, and then angels begin to ask this question, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So what is this and what does this mean? This scroll represents the judgments of God, because that's what plays out later on in the book of Revelation. Who is able, who is worthy to judge humanity? And it says, you know, at first it looks like no one in heaven and earth or under the earth is open is is worthy to open the scroll to judge humanity. And it says he wept and he wept some more. And then an angel came and said, do not weep. I see someone who's worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this this scroll, once again, represents the person or the one who is worthy to judge humanity or who owns the earth, who owns the power, who owns the riches, who owns the wealth, who has the wisdom. John also sees that there was a lamb that had been slain. So this man who is a lion, he is a lamb, he takes the scroll, he's open, he's worthy and able to judge humanity, and the creatures in heaven, the people in heaven all begin to worship him, and they begin to sing a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, and it says, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nations. They also cheer him on, saying he is worthy as the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Jesus is the only one who is worthy to judge all of humanity and judge doesn't necessarily mean negative. It goes on and says in Isaiah 42, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, that one day he will come and he will bring justice to the nation. So when Jesus judges, it can be both positive and it can be both negative. Jesus, because he became a man, he faced every temptation that humans face, and he overcame, and because he overcame, he can help us who are humans overcome. Jesus himself said this. It's very powerful and very important. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up or I raise it up. This authority the Father gives me. When Jesus was on the verge of being crucified, when they came to arrest him, 
they asked, you know, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And he spoke his name. He said, I am he, Jesus of Nazareth. It says something interesting in the Gospel of John. It says they all just fell down. And as the story goes on, you know, Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of, of a guy. And Jesus tells him to put away his sword. He said, I could call down angels from heaven. Jesus is the one man who had the power to stop his own death and his own crucifixion. But he didn't do it. Jesus didn't die just as a victim of injustice. Jesus died willingly as a sacrifice. The Gospel of Mark starts off this way. It says, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every gospel starts out a little bit different, but I do think it's kind of interesting that when you look at the very verse, three verses of the gospel of Mark, it starts off by pointing you backwards to Isaiah chapter 40, which is where I want to kind of focus on here in a minute. It's kind of like I started with the last episode of The Lord of the Rings where they won the victory, but now I want to go back to the first episode to see how we got to the end. Before I read Isaiah 40, it's very important that we understand the context and the storyline of the Old Testament. And I'm going to give a brief summary highlighting a few points to bring this in to context. Genesis 1 starts off saying that God created the heavens and the earth. He created a good world. It was perfect. We sinned and we start blowing it. In Genesis chapter 6, the world is so violent that God sends a flood to destroy most of the earth besides one family. In Genesis chapter 11, we have an example of corporate rebellion against God in the Tower of Babel. It's right after this, in Genesis chapter 12, God starts a relationship with a man named Abram. And this is what it says, what God says to him. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what is God saying here? He's saying, I'm choosing to have a relationship with this man named Abram, and through this man, I am going to bring blessing to him and through him that will be a blessing to the whole world. This blessing, though, that God promised to Abram, who later was known as Abraham, it wasn't just to him. It was to his his descendants. He had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had a son named Joseph. And after a period of time, the family of Abraham, or otherwise known also as the family of Jacob, ended up enslaved in Egypt. Now we come to Exodus, which contains one of the most famous Bible stories of all time when Moses delivers the children of Israel from the power and the tyranny of Egypt. God does this with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, power, miracles, signs and wonders, after being delivered, 
God visits them on Mount Sinai and wants to create a dwelling place to live with his people so they can be a light to the nations. He makes a covenant with them. If they obey the terms of the covenant, he will bless them. And if they do not, there will be discipline and punishment. All this is spelled out in what we call the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, usually considered the most fun parts of the Bible to read. They're actually a little complex, and if you can't fall asleep, just start reading Leviticus. So it takes a little bit of work to dig in and find the gems in these books. But let's get back to summarizing the story. So God makes a covenant with Israel. If they obey, they're blessed. If they don't, they'll be punished. So they fail miserably. After they entered the promised land, they start compromising. It goes back and forth and back and forth. They disobey. They find themselves oppressed. However, though, they cry out to God. God hears them, and he sends a deliverer. They finally get to David, where they finally become united, and they have peace from their enemies. This peace is extended through Solomon's reign, and they have peace and prosperity. It says that no one or everyone actually had a vineyard and a home. But after that, it goes downhill so fast. It's ridiculous. They have a civil war. They're divided into Israel and Judah. All the kings of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord, and only a handful of Judah's kings are good. This goes on for several centuries. So God sends the prophets to warn them of a day of destruction ahead if they do not turn back to the covenant. I mean, God told them this from the very beginning on Mount, Mount Sinai. One of the most wretched things that Israel did was sacrifice their children to the god Molech. Worshiping these other gods usually meant committing acts of great injustice towards people. Worshiping the true God connects on how we treat others. Therefore, that's why God told us, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, etc. If we Just think about it this way. What if the world just obeyed a few of those commandments, those three, murder, steal, and lie? The world would be a way better place. So that means the commandments of God are good. But unfortunately, Israel abandoned the covenant and they committed great acts of injustice toward people. So God wasn't happy with them. So he sent his prophets to warn them and tell them to repent and to turn back to him. Their hearts, though, were hard and stubborn. The prophets kept coming and they kept warning them that a day would come that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and so would the temple. This could have been avoided, but it did happen. As the prophets say, the Babylonians came into Judah, and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and the people of Israel were exiled out of the land of Israel, out of the land of promise. But it doesn't stop there. The prophets also spoke of this exile only lasting 70 years, and then a king would come up, and they named him. His name was Cyrus. He would come to power, and he would defeat the Babylonians, and he would set the captives free, or Israel free, and they would go back to the land of promise, to Jerusalem, and they would bring restoration, or they would restore the city and begin rebuilding the temple. Now that we have some context, let's read 
Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wastelands for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, Shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with the people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops, shout it louder. O Jerusalem, shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with the powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him. As he comes, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is advised, who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forest and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you can compare our God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold, decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that would not decay, and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that wouldn't fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began. Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below him seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world. He brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root. When he blows on them and they wither, the wind carries them off like chaff. 
To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. O Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. What the prophet Isaiah is saying is captivity is over. They are being set free again. There was a small remnant that did stay faithful to God, but as a whole, they abandoned the covenant and did not repent. But in spite of that, God did not forget, forget them. He chose to remember them. And it's also important to remember that God delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand, signs and wonders. God had showed them special treatment, so to speak, delivering them, proving that he was the only God and the most powerful of the gods. He simply asked for them to follow him as their God and treat people right, and he gave them the Ten Commandments so they could understand what he expected. But they abandoned God, but God did not abandon them. He sets them free again and again because he is the one that is faithful, and we are the ones who are not faithful. You know, Jesus said, the Scriptures say, that it rains on the just and the unjust which means God cares for all of humanity. And that was his intention from the very beginning. He wants to bless all of humanity. Even now, if you think about it, most people in the world are not starving to death. God sends the rains so we can eat and not starve. Now, some people say there are a few people. Yes, that's true. We tend to focus on the one person that's starving to death versus the hundred people who are, are thousands of people who are not starving to death. And we use this one negative to kind of accuse God. But God tells us to feed the hungry. He tells us to feed our enemies. God isn't responsible for all our decisions and the consequences we have in our life or in life, especially when we completely ignore him and his commands. There's no promise of blessing if we ignore God or if we give him the finger. But once again, most people are not starving to death. He looks down on us and he has pity, pity on us, just like he did the children of Israel. And even though he gave them the special privilege of seeing his glory, they walked away from him. But later on in Isaiah, there's a question that is asked. It says, can a mother forget her child? I mean, what is a mother great at? She's great at nursing her child and giving her baby food to satisfy the baby's crying hunger. It's a rare 
thing to see a mother abandon her child. The prophet goes on to say that God can't forget them. He has written their name on the palm of his hand. So the prophet says, comfort my people. God is a God of all comfort, and he gives us the Holy Spirit called the Comforter. The first time Israel became slaves, it wasn't their fault directly, meaning God had not revealed himself to them. He had not given them the Ten Commandments. They had not a chance to break commands or there wasn't a covenant. They became slaves and were treated very cruelly. But God set them free. And for centuries after entering the Promised Land, they compromised. But every time they cried out to God, he answered them. And then here again, God exiles them from the land. And again and again, he sets them free from captivity, even though they forgot him. God demonstrated his power by setting them free. I mean, do you see a pattern here? God is like a good shepherd. He leads his flock and feeds them and carries them in his arms. When he sets them free from Babylonian captivity, he uses King Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians. And God gives favor to them through this man. So they go back to Jerusalem to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He is the God of miracles, and he's the God of history. He sits in the heavens above the circle of the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases, and his plans can't be stopped. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He created the world as we know it with the words of his mouth. He said, let there be light, and there was light. The strength and the smarts of a billion people are no match for the wisdom and the strength of Almighty God. The nations are a drop in the bucket compared to him. The prophet asked, who is equal to him? We are like grass. The wind blows and we're gone. We're like grasshoppers compared to him. And what did Israel do? They cut down trees and made an image and worshiped this statue like it was a god, like other nations did. People today, they worship power, money, and sex. Their power is a speck of dust compared to God's power. Heaven's streets are paved with gold. People like Donald Trump and the billionaires, they have nothing on the wealth of God. The the pleasures of sex fade like grass, but people give their lives to pursue these things, thinking they will be happy and secure. The prophet says, cry out. You're like grass. God will blow his wind and you'll be gone tomorrow. You and I are nothing. God is everything. Now that I have said all of that, what's the connection to Jesus? My claim is that Jesus is the greatest man that has ever lived, and he still lives today. Earlier I spoke about how in the Gospel of Mark, in the first three verses, Mark immediately goes back to Isaiah 40. Now, let's move over to the Gospel of John, and let's see what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who do receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives them right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is God, and he created all things in the very beginning. Through him all things were created. The world was created. He and the Father are one. That's what Jesus said. And Jesus said in John chapter 17 that that him and the Father shared glory and that he was going to go back to the Father to share the same glory that they had in the beginning. John the Baptist was the voice crying out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. John was a witness. Now, Jesus said he didn't need human witness, but John was a witness to us, to point us, to show us that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. John said he did, he was not the light, but he came to testify of the light. He said he wasn't the Messiah, but he came to point the finger and say, look, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John says that even though he comes after me, he was before me, because Jesus is God. Let me mention one last scripture passage, and I'll start tying this more together and wrapping it up. It's in Philippians chapter 2, and it's talking about Jesus Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When was the last time you saw somebody who had great wealth and great power and authority give it up. Could you just imagine for a moment, like, let's say Donald Trump. He became president of the United States. He's considered a billionaire. But let's say a couple years into his first term, he decided to give everything up, all the power, all the money. Maybe he put it in a trust or something, 
and he decided to become like a small guy and move to Mexico and take care of orphans and use all of his wealth and influence to, to help orphans. First of all, this would be the most newsworthy story uh, of our time. And here is my point. You normally don't see men of power and great wealth set it aside. And see, here it is that the Scripture tells us that me and you, we were created by God and we were created for God. He created us in His image and His likeness. He created a perfect world, but we chose to rebel against Him. We chose to sin against him. We chose to give him, we chose to ignore him. We chose to give him the finger, whatever it is. But he continues to pursue us. He continues to come after us, just like he came after the children of Israel, and just like he continued to set them free over and over again. And finally, he lays down his rights and privileges as God, and he becomes a man. He humbles himself. He, he lays down that power and wealth and becomes a humble man. And, and even as a man, he's a carpenter. He's like a blue-collar worker. He's, he grows up in a humble family in a humble country at a time where Israel was actually oppressed or uh, the Romans occupied the country and they were in control of the country at the time. If that was all he did, though, that would be enough. He went even farther. Jesus said the very reason he came was to to suffer. Just like we suffer, he, he can identify with our sufferings and our temptations and our trials. He came to suffer. He came to die. He came to be betrayed. But he also came to be rose from the dead. The scriptures tell us that this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And he demonstrated his love for us while we were still yet rebels, rebel sinners. He died on a cross for us. Even death on a cross. He chose one of the most humiliating types of death. He chose to die a criminal's death even though he was innocent. He chose to do it. No one made him do it. This is the humility of God. God is created us. He is powerful. He is faithful. He loves us even though we don't love him sometimes. He calls us to himself. All we have to do is repent. Just turn away from our sins and turn back to him. And the scripture says that he will wipe away our sins. He will give us the Holy Spirit and he will make us a new creation. Jesus has done the heavy lifting, so to speak. He has done this great work that you cannot even compare it to these other men that we spoke of, even the ones who were Christians like Isaac Newton and even the Apostle Paul, a great man who was an enemy but was transformed from the inside out when he had an encounter with Jesus Christ 
because that's what happens when men and women encounter the greatest man that's ever lived. Their lives are transformed. He did not come to conform us or give us new religious rules. He came to set us free from all of our enemies, and those enemies are the death and the powers of darkness and sin. He conquered them all, and he destroyed them, and when we put our faith in him, we also will have the victory. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jesus Freedom Podcast. If you have a testimony or questions, feedback of any kind, you can reach me at the Jesus Freedom Podcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook, the Jesus Freedom Podcast. Once again, thank you for listening and hope you have a great day.